This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, a show about inspiring people and inspiring meals. On today's show, I am incredibly excited to introduce you to a woman who has created a pay-what-you-can model for cafes around the country by creating her own, the first. She helps people who have little money eat well and people to feel well and feel good as they eat her food. And another entrepreneur whose cooking school and cafe have become a community of sorts and one that I am very privileged to belong to. But first, I want to tell you about a meal that I had in San Francisco. I went to a restaurant called Mr. Jew's, and the chef, his name is Brandon Jew, he has transformed an old Chinatown restaurant into a beautiful loft-like space with incredible light and windows. The view from my seat was down a narrow street of Chinatown, and I really I felt like I was at one with the street and, um, and the people. There's an open kitchen, so Brandon's there cooking away, and what he's done is he's elevated... Chinese food, not elevated as in made it sort of snobby, but elevated in taking local farmed ingredients and treating them with tremendous respect, but making dishes that you might recognize from the Chinese, some of the dishes you might recognize from Chinese restaurants that you know. One of my favorite things that he does is a salt and vinegar shrimp chip. Now, I mean, to be fair, I love a salt and vinegar potato chip, and I love a a shrimp chip. So these two things together to start a meal, I I just, it was mind-blowing. And I also think that it's something that he should package and sell. So Brandon, if you're listening, my advice to you is, you know, find a packager for these things. They're crispy, they're tangy, they're salty, Um, of course they're shrimpy. But it's just, they're, they're crunchy. I love crunchy foods, and it's crackly, um, and it really gets you ready to have the rest of the meal. I, I always have a food that I compare all other foods to when I'm eating, and in a Chinese restaurant, that's hot and sour soup. I am usually terribly disappointed because it's gloppy. It doesn't really have enough stuff in it because I really I, I fish for the stuff. I'm less interested in the broth. But Brandon has the the perfect balance, and it is a clear, clean soup with the lightest tofu and mushrooms. And the whole dish is, it feels very French, actually, because it's so light, but the flavors are all Asian. Another thing I loved on his menu was this silken tofu. Now, when it comes to the table, you don't know it's silken tofu because there is a field of the smallest little yellow and orange sun gold tomatoes cut in half and marinated so there's just this beautiful marigold color it's beneath that made with fermented tea leaves a beautiful silken tofu so if you can imagine that it's so smooth and yet there's this like hit of vinegar and the um the pop of these sun gold tomatoes i just 
I recommend that if you're in San Francisco, you go sit in that beautiful light-filled room and, and just be a part of Chinatown, but be a part of Brandon Jew's Chinatown when you go. Now, I know that I am incredibly lucky, incredibly privileged to be able to have these amazing meals. And um, it's one of the reasons I'm incredibly involved in a variety of hunger relief charities, one of them being City Harvest, um, which is in New York City. But today I have a guest on the show who has done more than uh, a little bit of work trying to help feed hungry people. She has created an extraordinary movement, if you will, of pay-what-you-can cafes. This past year, she won a James Beard Award as Humanitarian of the Year for pioneering work that addresses food insecurity. Her name is Denise Serretta, and I am delighted to welcome her to Speaking Broadly. Denise, so happy to have you on the air. Thank you, Dana. I'm glad to be here. So your organization is called One World Everybody Eats. I, I love that concept because I think we can all live in our own world and not worry about who's eating or what they're eating. And I would love to have you tell us a little bit about the origin of the organization. Tell us about One World Cafe, which is the idea that you had that sparked it all. Sure. Well, I have to go back in time. I I was an acupuncturist in Salt Lake City, and I really felt in my heart I had reached my spiritual glass ceiling. And in order to grow, I needed to close my practice. So that, I have to say, was my biggest leap. I did close it, and I went into this little cafe that I had put in the front of the building. And I really had to take everyone's job <laughs> and strap on an apron and start cooking and serving because my it was new, and my acupuncture clinic was really, you know, the cash cow at that time. So I was doing that and, and keeping everything afloat. And a couple months into it, I had this, I'll have to call it my own personal field of dreams moment where I really heard with my spiritual ears, go to donation, let people price their own meals. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is, that's an amazing piece of intuition to have, you know. Um, so what did you say back to that spiritual self who had that idea? What do you mean? How am I going to do that? What was your next thought? Exactly. So... I, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> maybe I, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that. But the next person that walked into the, the, the cafe, I, I just said, uh, no more pricing, just price your own. And at that moment, I really felt my heart expand. And, and I realized, oh, my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to do next. So wait, you literally, you had an idea, and within let's call it five minutes, you acted on that idea without figuring out how this is going to work. You just said to that person, pay what you... That is I mean, what we call a leap of faith. <laughs> it really it really was. And I can't say that every time I, I've had an idea, I've <laughs> done that. But at that moment, that's how it happened. And, and what do, do you remember by any chance, like, what did that person pay? Did they decide to, you know, pay you a dollar for something you would have charged 10? Or, you know, wh- what do you find when people come and they're given the option to pay what they want? What does that do for the individual on the paying side? You know, I, I think it does a lot of things. I just, uh, I think it, it gives someone an opportunity to be, to be generous, to pay something forward, I think it gives someone an opportunity to say, wow, whew, I really needed this a little bit of a break right now, mm-hmm. you know, but, but to, to be in community and to eat great food and not to feel like my life is falling apart, you know? And, and do you feel yeah, that in some way there's so a, so forth. is there a contract in some unspoken way between those who can pay and those who can't pay who all eat together in this community that you had created? I would say there, the the intention is a hand up and not a forced handout. So, the the um, I would say the energy is if you don't feel like you're you're anywhere in the ballpark to to, um, to even if you're underpaying and you have the time, we'd like people to step up and volunteer mm-hmm. and 
be part of part of this creation and you know earn a meal tell us a little bit about the food that you serve because i know that um you know you're serving delicious meals it's not it isn't just about the financial model right well when i first started our first cafe obviously there's there's over you know 60 65 cafes right now and they all have their own um community and their and and their own individual venue but we we uh mentor people to to cook without a menu to so cook with in the season and get you know fresh local organic uh food when possible and also use donations so it's it's like healthy it reminds me of going into like a whole foods and you know how they have the you know the deli section and all the salads and things like that that's how i used to cook just small smaller batches fresh food um local food different every day it was wonderful so when you went and then we'll get to what you're doing now because you're overseeing things more than obviously in a kitchen or running the cafe but um when you went from acupuncturist to restaurateur what was the hardest change like what 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 did you need to overcome in your own mind or what skills did you need to acquire I think all of them I really I had I was a waitress years years ago when I was in in uh, undergrad but that's nothing to to knowing how to run a restaurant and order food and cook and you know to do everything and I just like I say I just strapped on an apron and there I was it's like I I just felt like it has to happen so even even doing dishes <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a restaurant, it's different. We had a triple sink, but you have to, you know, sanitize and this and that. And I have to tell a funny story. Um, uh, I had a girlfriend that visited me, and you know, I was just doing it. And she grew up in a in a family that had a restaurant. And she's like, Denise, shouldn't you be ordering all this food wholesale? And I'm like, <laughs> what's wholesale? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, now that's a learning experience. <laughs> so that, I mean, that really can put it in perspective of how much, uh, you know, not how much knowledge I had. I just, I just was just threw myself in there and and did it. But thank goodness, so many people, you know, down the road that had restaurant experience, uh, like. You know, uh, Ron Shake with Panera and different chefs and, you know, that really knew how to do things through their hat in the ring and, and really made this movement come alive. So let's talk about how you made the movement come alive, because as you said, there's now 60, 65 cafes uh, using this model. Uh, how does it work and, and what type of help did you get from Panera? Well, Panera, actually, we mentored Panera. They came to us for, uh, you know, to just talk about the model. <laughs> but Good for um, them for, for understanding ha- how important it is. That's great. Yeah. How, however, what, what we did, I, I honestly had no idea. I was just keeping my head above water and trying to learn everything, and I just felt really committed at the beginning. And we had a couple come down from Denver, Brad and Libby Berkey, in probably oh, 2004 or five, and and they had thought of this idea and Googled and saw that I was doing it, and and they were really the first uh, people to replicate the model, and, the, and it's called Same Cafe. And then you know we we decided to become a nonprofit, and that took about a year and a half back then because it was a you know just an unheard of concept. And then a couple, you know, it just things evolved. One of our board members is like, we should hold the summit. Don Merrill, one of the original board members. Uh-huh. And, and I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> he was always a step ahead of, of everything. He was like, we should write a manual to help people to do this. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you were very... He, he was right. And we started our first summit, um, I think it was like 2009. And we've had one every year since. And, well, and what does and this? And it's over Martin Luther King weekend. In case anybody wants to, you know, you know, mark it on their calendar or 
participate. And this year it's going to be in New Orleans. And tell us what happens at the summit. Well, we have, you know, different speakers, but it's really an opportunity for people who are thinking about doing the concept or in their original planning stages to meet with with uh, the visionaries that have actually opened cafes in their in their community. And so there's um, we're going to have a lot of breakout sessions this year with with just in um, different uh, topics that will be taught by by um, the visionaries or people in, in our larger community that are running cafes. We're really excited about that. But it gives people a chance to know and make um, connections, and I think that's the strength of it. So they could pick up the phone and call somebody across the country and just, you know, ha- feel like they know that they have a network. Right. And so are the cafes that open, are they nonprofit as well, or they're for-profit uh, restaurants? They're nonprofit. They're all nonprofit. And I believe you could do it either way, but most tend to go the nonprofit route. Just and do you, when you think of this vision of, you know, a hand up, do you feel that there's a way to transform other industries with this model where you you know, pay what you can? I think so. I, you know, through the years I've had um, some doctors um, and some, like, uh, yoga practitioners, some acupuncturists that, that, uh, you know, wanted to implement that and have into their practices. I think it can. I think the the underlying strength is that these venues build community. Mm -hmm. And when you really, and community that maybe necessarily wouldn't be coming together. Right. I think that's really the the most beautiful thing when when I think about, you know, it's a very, it's a self-selecting group um, because you're not just coming for the food. You're, it's a, it's a mission driven, it's an experience and everybody wants experiences, but what a great experience to eat together have a conversation, you know, share great food. Exactly. And, you know, I just was listening to your introduction, and, and if you think about it, if to, for some really great food, if you don't have enough money in your pocket, you really can't walk through those doors. Right. And the community cafe, those doors are wide open. And yeah. for me, that, that's the beauty of it. Right. And if I, if I think, I mean, eating is a central, it is what is on my mind every single part of the day, but in a very indulgent, like I want to experience new things. But if I, when I think if food was on my mind every minute of the day, because I was hungry and I didn't have enough to eat, then the notion of having a place that I know I could go and be respected and, um, you know, feel warmly welcome. Right. You know, things like that. Right. Where I know it's, it's just, it's it gives me goosebumps. Mind-blowing mind to think, you know, it's so basic, but what if what if you were in the position where where's that next meal going to come from? Or, you know, two days from now, where's, where's that next meal going to come from? It gets really, you know, intense. That's right. So I think it's fantastic that you have created this organization that will help others, and I hope people who are listening are inspired to tell their friends to, su- to support the cause of um, One World Everybody Eats and to go find a cafe in your area or if you're driving through someone's town, a town where you know the cafe exists, check in, have a meal, you know, share share the bounty. So, Denise, thank you so much. I loved having you on Speaking Broadly and I look forward to our paths crossing again. Thank you, Dana, and thank you for all your blessings for One World Everybody Eats. So with that, we're going to take a break. And when we return, I'll be talking with Ali Kane, the entrepreneur behind one of my favorite cafes in the entire country, Haven's Kitchen. Be right back. This program is brought to you by Chef's Collaborative, 
a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. My show is about people, life, and food. Tune in on Wednesdays at one o'clock to hear me talk with people from all walks of life. I interview artists, writers, healers, chefs, and much more. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Your donations help keep us operating. So while we're all here, so Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan. I am incredibly excited to welcome Allie Kane. Hi, Allie. Hi. It must have been interesting to listen to Denise Serretta talk about the cafe that, well, she runs, which ran, which was One World Cafe, which is a pay-what-you-can model, yeah. and then trying to help other people create these pay-as-you-can models, since you yeah. have one of the great <laughs> Cafes. Just before we move ahead, I'm wondering, did you have any thoughts on what she was talking about? Other than feeling terrible about myself, basically, <laughs> that I didn't do that. Um, no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I the idea of, um, you know, we do try to have, you can be at Haven's Kitchen, actually, and cost us money because you can use our Wi-Fi and have a glass of water. Um, all the way through having a wedding, you know. Right. So we like to think that in our own way, considering that we're an independent brick and mortar in the middle of Manhattan, um, that we are thoughtful and mindful about access to our place. I feel like the commonality that I see really is that she's focused on creating a community, mm -hmm. and you have created sort of it looks the outside effortlessly, but um, <laughs> intentionally, you've created an extraordinary community. And if you go to Haven's Kitchen, you feel immediately welcomed, which was part of your idea. Mm -hmm. And Haven's Kitchen, much as it is, um, it's a cafe, it's a cooking school, it's an event space in a, a beautiful carriage house. It's all those things, but the people who gravitate towards it mm -hmm. are are infused immediately with a, a sense of purpose that you have. Again, mm -hmm. that's not heavy-handed, but your goal is to um, sort of be able to have other people live your values, and those values include sustainability right. and, um, you know, food justice. So in the most light-touch kind of a way, right. you are creating a community and a sense of values in the same way that Denise's. Her model is right. different. Um you know, yeah. but I was thinking, how would my landlord feel if I <laughs> switched my model? And I don't think he'd be that into it. But I yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the overarching idea is that there is this larger food system and that your choices are impacted by that food system and that they also affect that food system and getting people to sort of consider that what they eat and what they cook isn't just a matter of their own personal choice, but that it does connect to people working and the environment and, you know, a much larger, more complicated system, realizing that they have the power to make change and to change that system for good, um, but not doing it in a heavy handed, as you said, way. We're not trying to, you know... No, there's you know, no make you feel bad when you go to have lunch. Some there's people. no pamphlet that comes with your no. um, incredibly delicious soup. Thank you. Um, so, which is a good thing. I mean, you're you're 
living the values. One of your values I know is you you preach the power of home cooking. Yes. And you want people to be able to cook effortlessly and therefore they would cook more. more. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea behind the cooking school, which mm-hmm. I know those classes are so often sold out. And then the idea behind your really great book, mm, um, The Haven's Kitchen Cooking School. So I, because I am a reluctant home cook, mm-hmm. somewhat reluctant, more like I just make a ton of mistakes. So I get sick of that sometimes. Um, I put myself in your hands so we could cook together and you could teach me to be effortless. Um, I have my thoughts on how that went, but what did you think? I thought it was actually kind of perfect because the day that you came, the kitchen was crazy (laughs) and we had like 18 inches of workspace (laughs) to make three things in 45 minutes. And I think at some point, like I took the soup out and then it was, I was like, ah, we got to throw it back in the blender. Like it's not quite like it was actually classic because it was so you I'm not a trained professional chef I'm just a happy home cook 90% of the time I always make mistakes I kind of don't consider them mistakes I just kind of I'm like well let's try it again um and I thought it was sort of kind of the embodiment of just sort of two people trying to figure it out in a kitchen and making pretty good food and having a good time doing it I, I would con- I hope concur. You had a good I know. Time. I had a great time. We were surrounded by such business, yes. and um, there were people making things that you know. I, like I wanted to be at every station yes. eating what they were making because someone was making um, these seed crackers. So I got to see <laughs> firsthand how these seed crackers are made, which are an obsession of mine because yes. I love CD crackers that are light and they don't have too much flavor, and they're right. they're like they're almost like they're puffed, but they're yes. not. I saw them made. Right. I learned a really really great trick for making um, cookies uh-huh. because um, one of your cooks had a, a glove on, like a rubber glove, uh-huh. and um, and a scoop. Yep. And she scooped the um, she scooped the batter, and then she rolled it out on her glove and then smashed it. It was so fast. Yeah. I'm like, I want to use that technique always. So rubber glove, scooper, <laughs> you know, yeah. put the scoop out. And then she scooped it against her hand. I mean, that's one of the things I try to do in the book. I have always sort of seen myself as this bridge between the home cook and I have this incredible, as you do, like access to these really amazing professional chefs and bakers. And all the time, I'm like, why are you doing that? Why'd you do that? How come you use that? And I wanted to sort of demystify a lot of that for people like me who are just trying to get dinner on the table for their kids or for themselves or they think it's a nice idea to have some friends over and they don't want to be stressed for the day and a half before they, you know, before they make their meals. Well, making that together, so it probably would have taken us a bit more than 45 minutes and we had some help with the cleanup, which I really, which I really appreciated. Exactly. But that... Um, we made a flourless chocolate cake, which is like uh, lots of eggs, like five eggs, mm-hmm. a stick and a half of butter-ish, mm-hmm. and a lot of chocolate. Yeah. I was like, I, you can't go wrong with that. No. So I'm always happy with recipes where you actually can't go wrong. No. Even if that turned into chocolate mud, I would have eaten totally. it. Totally. I mean, that, and that and dessert was actually the hardest chapter for me to write. It's the shortest. Um, yeah, because the reality is, is I'm... I, because I'm an intuitive cook and I don't like recipes, it's actually challenging to find desserts that are not recipe dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ones that are more recipe dependent are also very flexible. You know, poaching a pear, the recipe in the book is flawless. But I mean, v- most of the time I kind of, I don't do enough of something or I boil it too long or my pear gets too mushy and it's still delicious and it doesn't really matter. I didn't want these to be pristine. Right. Um, And so it it was, it was challenging because I'm not a big dessert maker in general, but it is a nice way to sort of say, Hey guest. And I even (laughs) made you a poached pear, you know, and they're pretty or a chocolate cake. I mean, there's no way to say I love you. Like, like chocolate, chocolate cake. cake. Yeah. Or 
je t'aime. <laughs> um, so when you opened this business, yes. uh, it was a really crazy time in your life. Yeah. Um, your marriage was on the rocks and you soon got a divorce. Yeah. You have five kids, yes. which meant that you were um, a single mom-ish. Uh, yeah, I mean, that all happened around the same time. I didn't know that I was a single mom quite yet, yeah. but I sort of, yeah, I mean... It was just a lot to do at yes. the same time. Did you ever think, this is just too much for me? No, I kept just thanking God that I had something to get me out of bed. I mean, at the end of the day, like, if I didn't have to be there and I didn't have a team that was sort of looking to me to figure out what to do today, um, I would have probably been on the bathroom floor a lot longer. You know, I mean, I was just sad. And, um, you know, a lot happens when you are in a time like that because your identity, at least my identity, was so connected to being a wife and a mom. And then I wasn't anymore. Um, so I kind of had to figure out who I was. And then I became the owner of this thing. And it, it really saved me in a lot of ways. So I didn't feel overwhelmed by it. I felt very grateful that I had it. Do you feel that as you were dreaming this up, because you, mm -hmm. you didn't dream it up overnight, and you're renovate. I don't know about the renovation of that space, right. but um, did you have it unknowingly in the back of your mind as your fallback yeah, position? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I went back to, to school at 38. I was a stay-at-home mom. I lived a very comfortable life, and I started getting inklings that maybe... Like, I always quote that, um, the talking head song, like, this is not my beautiful house. Uh -huh. This is not my beautiful life. Like, uh -huh. I kept, I kind of was like, something's not, um, so I needed to figure out what I, what I was good at, what I was employable for. I mean, I hadn't worked in 15 years outside of the home. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved food and I taught cooking all throughout college and after college just to friends and friends of friends because it always was my happy place mm -hmm. and it was always a place that sort of confounded other people and I always wanted to try to help figure out what was what was confounding mm -hmm. to them um, and then as a function of that I started reading Joan Gussow and then I just decided I needed to get a degree. And what, what about Joan Gussow sort of helped motivate you? Um, I mean, she basically, she was, she sort of connected the dots for me because her whole thing is local, local, local. Um, and, you know, there's a video of her from some interview she did a long time ago where she says, you know, so, okay, yeah, there's this movement now and people know that they should be going to the farmer's market or perhaps joining CSAs or trying to buy outside of the industrial food system, but they don't know what to do with it once they buy it. So there are all these people with like pounds of zucchini and they have no <laughs> idea. They're like, this is beautiful and I feel good about myself, but then it goes to waste and then they feel bad about themselves. So her whole thing is the world needs more teachers teaching people what to do with this food. And so I was like, Aha, uh -huh, that um. is what I want to do. I, it, it turns out that sort of like Denise, it didn't take me five minutes, but mm -hmm. my kids make fun of me because I was like, when you guys all go to college, I think I'm going to open this cooking school that connects people to the food system. And then nine months later, I was open. Wow. And it, it was like, it was, I, I fell in love with the place. And so, how did I, you, I mean, let's go back because you yeah. said so many interesting things. So, how did you, come to realize what you would be good at because I can only imagine right. 15 years of really focusing on your yeah. kids and your husband and your house yeah. and that life whatever that life was how did you even find that thing that right I think actually that's become? like that is the money question and that goes back to the design discussion we were having it goes back to everything like it goes back to cooking figuring out what you like figuring out what you're good at, figuring out what gives you that feeling where like you lose sense of time and space and mm -hmm. you're just like in your flow. Like 
I was very lucky. But, but you knew to identify that. Like I, you- I knew. I knew that I knew that what I loved doing in life was taking something that felt big and breaking it into pieces that were digestible and that connected to something mm-hmm. and that um, you know, I loved learning mm-hmm. and I loved being able to teach mm-hmm. and and interpret and mm-hmm. you know, bridge like I said, right. I didn't understand this physics theory either but when it was explained to me this way ah there it is like so I think um I knew that I knew that I wanted to build a place where people could connect and where they could learn in a way that they felt unintimidated and they felt appreciated you know and how did you find the momentum? Because really, as you say, so with Denise, it took five minutes. You nine months right. is nothing. No, I know. So um, did you have great real estate luck or you had no. a good business plan? No, or? I had none of the above. I I mean, it's ridiculous. Now I look back and I'm like, oh, my gosh, whoa. Like, what were you thinking? That was just ridiculous. But, you know, I first of all, I didn't even know I was opening like a business. I think <laughs> I thought I was opening a school. And I really I kid you not, I sound like a total moron, but I'll admit it. I thought, OK, it's going to bring in roughly this and we'll spend roughly that. And as long as it's kind of like around the same, it's fine. I right. mean, which is just dumb. Or just not very well educated and certainly not a great business plan. So um, I also broke rule number one where I am. Um, so my I was an intern in the at the Union Square Green Market for two years, which is funny at 38 or whatever. <laughs> but I ran the education station. So I was giving all the school tours um, at the time and doing that sort of during the day and then doing cooking classes at home. And that's, I, I wanted a place to combine them. And truthfully, I felt uncomfortable charging money, teaching people in my home. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't qualified mm-hmm. or there was something sort of tacky about that. Mm-hmm. Like I, w- I needed a place mm-hmm. that was a separate physical space mm-hmm. and I needed it to be near the green market. Right. And so I did, I don't even know if it still exists. There's this website called LoopNet. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a street easy, but for um, commercial. And mm. and so I, I did LoopNet and I did a five block radius from the green market. And of course, I didn't think I wanted retail. I mean, right. everyone's like, don't do retail, yeah. nightmare, disaster. Um, so, I, but this little, this little house kept coming up. And, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I took one look and like, the emoji with like the heart eyes. Like I was just like, Oh my goodness. And I'll, you know, I'll put cafe here and then I can have a bar and then people can have parties where they cook their own food and then they bring it up. Like it was just like, I was like Gaga. Um, and the landlord, you know, God bless him was like, he called me cooking school lady for the first like three years of our relationship. Cause he was like, listen, you want to build it? Like, All right. You know, he gave me a really good rent because I had to do all of the construction myself and get, I mean, the CFO for the building was for three people. Um, when I got the lease because it was basically horses and a couple (laughs) of humans, really, it wasn't meant for people. Oh my gosh. There was a, there's a church that's like within two feet of the, you know, the law. So I had to go every night to ask the the pastor at the church to sign a thing saying I could have a liquor license. I mean, it was just, but again, I, it was this labor of love and I had this vision of this hive of, you know, people eating and people cooking and people learning and talking and, and there needed to be, you know, there was this sort of burgeoning food movement, you know, in 2010 where people were starting to understand that all of these issues were connected and that hunger and food access and sustainability and labor and the environment, all of it was connected and it was connected to food. And there was no sort of physical place for people to discuss and support those ideas. So that's what I wanted to create. And you've just done it so um, so magnificently. I know that a lot of people have asked you to replicate it. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to yeah. replicate something that evolved so naturally. Yeah. And that is really so much from the... Yeah. Heart. I mean, I looked at, you know, at some point, 
you know, a couple of years into any successful quote unquote business, you know, you start to think, okay, how do I keep the people that are here engaged and growing? How do I, you know, grow, you know, prudently, you know, where I'm, I'm continuing to innovate and, you know, you do, there is a very steep sort of cost of living. I mean, owning a small business in New York City is virtually impossible at this point with the rent and labor and, you know, all of the issues Insurance. that we have, taxes. It's, I mean, I pay tax on tax, like on tax. <laughs> um, but, not but you know, but the, the, how do I grow? And, you know, of course, it's very tempting to listen to the developer in L.A. who's like, I'll put you in here and this will be great and you'll be a part of our thing. And um, I just I don't think that's the way forward for me. Um, I feel like or Havens. in um, in knowing you a little, I feel mm-hmm. like you've grown or you, you've told me you've grown really as a business person. Because yeah. from like, you know, these things will even out. Yeah. To really, I think, ramping up that business yeah. mind that might have been a little bit hidden. We we have another connection, dear listener, um, <laughs> which is that my um, my older brother and Ali's dad worked in the same company. So Ali comes from a, a family where finance, I don't know if it was the talk of the dinner table, but you, <laughs> she's rolling her eyes. Right. No, is- I think that's why I've wanted to stay as far <laughs> away. You know, I was like, I'm not a math person. I'm not a business person. You know, and I think... I did myself a little bit of a disservice painting myself that way. Um, but that was my way of rebelling, I guess, against, you know, the machine that was the New York Wall Street world of the 80s that I grew up in. And so how does it feel to embrace that now that um, you've embraced the math and you've found like that DNA strand that right. is definitely linked to that, you know... Some days I'm going to make a cultural reference. We'll see if it's like in your in your wheelhouse. But remember Gilda Radner? Yes. When she would sit on the big chair and her legs would be swinging and she's like, I'm going to be, a be-. you know, like I, sometimes I feel like you've got to be kidding me. You have no idea what you're talking about. Like, all right. And then there are other days where I'm like, OK, you might not know exactly how to make an Excel model for the next 10 years. And it might not look pretty, but your intuition is pretty good. And you are pretty resourceful and you can find the right people to manage that part of it for you Mm -hmm. or at least teach you how to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I am pretty right often about this stuff. And I am always kind of scared to admit it because maybe it's just luck or maybe, you know, I I don't know, maybe it's going to run out. Um, But. I think that I've also, I went back to that Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business program. You know, I learn a lot from my amazing accountant who Hmm. just is so patient with me. And I just ask all these questions all the time. And I want to understand, it's kind of like with the cooking, Mm -hmm. like I want to connect it to something so that I, like, you know, when you learn something, but it hasn't really, you're like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I kind of get that. But then, you know, when you learn something, you're like, OK, this I've ingested. Right. And now it's in my body. Right. That's how I want to be about the numbers. And I'm not there yet, but I, you know, I'm getting there. And as I launch new things, it's it's imperative that I get there because I need to be smart. So you are launching something. You're launching sauces, which. Yes. So people, you're encouraging them to cook at home, but you're also making it easier for them. Yes. If they take home the chimichurri sauce or yeah. the. I mean, basically, we have, you know, thousands of students a year who um, they have their repertoire. They have their five things that they make that they feel comfortable making. And really what they want is just something to amp it up a little bit, make it more beautiful, make it taste a little better, connect it a little more with like those global flavors that Mm -hmm. their palates have gotten Mm -hmm. used to that take it a little bit out of like the home cook sphere Mm -hmm. and into like the sort of a little bit more um, sophisticated mm-hmm. sphere. But on the other hand, they don't necessarily want to go buy lemongrass and figure out how to use it. Lemongrass and, is such a pain, just yeah, speaking of. I so. mean, it's, it's challenging. And, and, you know, there's there's a lot of prep that goes into 
a simple sauce. And they're in our book. It's not as if we're like hiding, <laughs> you know, how to make them. I want people to make them from home. But is the but, seed recipe in your book? Uh, no. I know it's no. not. <laughs> um, it's not because the, the it came about as such a random thing. It will be. If we have a next book, we will have the seedy cracker in there. And we did figure out a way to like ramp up production so that the people out there who buy 12 at a time can still do that and other people. We had a moment where we were like, do we need to limit the amount of CD crackers people can buy in one visit? Like, I just, as I, in like I really Cronin. love that. We, right, we've got our, the, it's a less indulgent version of the, the Cronet. Um, <laughs> so I know you were saying that you were reading up and um, Henry Ford was inspiring you. I yes. want to hear about um, the lessons from Henry Ford. So As you're growing I, your business. I, I don't know if you get the... I get this quarterly Latham's. It's oh, yeah. Lewis Latham. And he... It's just this beautiful just treat. Just It's just like a gift to yourself. But in one of them... Um, and there's an online... You know, I get an email. So this was an email. Um, and Henry Ford, I guess, wrote this in 1922. And it's basically about how he grew his car company. And... You know, I think there's a tendency, and especially in the last couple of years in the food world, you know, it's hard to resist this sort of get a lot of investment, build something big and hope that it hits, you know, and hope that you make that money back and that the people that invest in you get two or three or whatever times that, you know, whatever they put in. And I've my sort of natural inclination is like make a little bit, see if it sells. Mm-hmm. If it sells, reinvest in yourself mm-hmm. and then grow. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of this more organic, mm-hmm. I think, sort of, um, again, a little bit more prudent, in my opinion, growth. Um, because food, you know, that might work for tech. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, if you have a profit in your first couple of years in tech, you're doing something very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um if food is not tech, food is, you know, human beings and like we said, the sunshine yeah. and water and the soil and its transportation. And there's so many things that go into it um, that the idea of any sort of speculation in a food business, I find to be a little bit scary. Uh-huh. But it was comforting because, you know, he was writing this in 1922, talking about, you know, financing of the day and bubbles and, you know, how he said, if you're building a product that doesn't support itself by its own sales, then you are not building a good product. And he talks about service and he talks about sort of the model of build a crappy car and people will come back and need parts and then you can charge them for that. And how (laughs) he was like, that's just the antithesis of the kind of product and service that I want to offer. And so, you know, he, it's (laughs) maybe we're like modeling ourselves after Henry Ford, but you know, in a way, I mean, to us, it's just about this slow and steady and consistent and like, really sticking to our mission and providing good service and providing a good product and and I do wonder it. if there's any part of you that feels um that maybe your father took a lot of risks and you're going to take less risks but you're going to be just as smart I think you know I think it I didn't even know I was taking such a big risk mm-hmm. I mean no, I mean, I don't think you're, I think that yeah. not the initial risk, because but that, that was, was a ridiculously big true. risk. I mean, this is actually arguably less of a risk because I know more and I have more, you know, like stuff to hold on to, to help me through it. But it feels bigger because I think I'm aware of the downside more. Like it's almost like the more, you know, mm-hmm. the scarier things are. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, to be an entrepreneur, and I guess that's what I am, like, you have to take risks. They have to be well-educated, and and you're not going to feel, you know, to feel cavalier about them, I think, is either narcissistic or just ignorant. But, you know. I, I love the, you are an entrepreneur, but you are also a social engineer. Mm-hmm. And, um, that sounds a little scary. I, <laughs> well, in that... In that you've just created a really lovely space. I think of entrepreneurs so often creating products, but you've created right. something that's more ethereal than that. I hope and so. um, 
and very lasting for anyone who gets to participate in it. Um, at the close of the show, I always ask my guest to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. So is there a woman in the food world who you respect, who you feel should be in the Speaking Broadly Hall of Dames? Oh, my gosh. There are so many. Um, someone who's, like, new in nope. the... Any, just, right. they should be living. That's my right. one. <laughs> living. I mean, to me, Liz Newmark is an incredible example of someone who has built an incredible business, which is super mission-driven, where all of her... And her business is uh, great performances. So she has great performances, and she has Kotchke Farm. And, and, and Sylvia's. And she has Sylvia's Table. table. And, and it's all connected, you know, that, that you don't have to choose between doing good and doing well, that you can, that those things can support each other. You know, it's really when something is on brand and also supports the mission and also might be lucrative in some way, it's like this trifecta of joy. And I feel like, you know, I don't know the inner workings of everything, but she's incredibly generous with her time to women that are entering the field. She's incredibly supportive of a lot of different things. She's very quiet about it. Mm-hmm. Um, she has this beautiful farm that our CSA is, can, oh. is a Kotchke farm, which is her farm. Um, she's just found a way to really integrate her values and her business sense, and, and I think she's a great model. So there you have it. That's today's episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to thank my engineer David Tatashore and my um, my guest Christopher Kaiser who's listening in <laughs> and, and uh, Allie for joining me and Denise thank you so much and we'll be back at it next week with more inspiring stories about food and meals. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.